It was a number of years ago, it was during, uh, I think it was this service actually, that my wife is sitting down where she normally sits and um, she got some kind of phone call and she made her way out in the middle of the service. It doesn't normally, you know, rock my world too much, but when my next son gets up and walks out, and I'm kind of thinking, huh, and then my next son gets up, and the next thing I know, I'm seeing back there, that's the the problem of having uh, glass doors back there, that I can see what's going on, and I can see that individual out there having a cup of coffee and thinking that he's all by himself, but I see him just like that day. Now, at that point, you kind of knew something's going on. I had one son that was over in Bend uh, over the weekend. And so not knowing at all what's, what's happening, I have one of three options. The first option is to just let it go and preach as if you're not seeing anything. That's a little difficult on that day. The second option would be is to, um, in the middle of the sermon, say, in conclusion, Jesus wins, let's go home. The third option is, um, is to, you know, just bolt back there, wrap the sermon up and say, we're done. Something's going on and I want to go find out. I chose uh, the first one is just to preach on. Um, after 40 years or so, you kind of get used to that. And pretty much, I think you could almost, you know, keel over and die right in front of me. And I wouldn't know the difference between that and my grandmother who did that, you know, over the years and just fell asleep in every sermon. (laughs) So I preached. Find out later that my son was in a head-on collision at about 50, 60 miles an hour up on the pass. And you realize when that kind of thing happens, as a parent, the most vulnerable thing you feel is your children. There really is not anything else. I mean, I've listened to many a parent wail and, and, and cry out to God, God, give me the cancer, not my son. Now, of course, we all know that's kind of a silly statement. I don't take it for what they're saying. I take it for what they mean. God, I will do anything. I will take the pain, please. And, and we don't think through it. Of course, God's not up there. Well, I have a certain amount of cancer I need to hand out, so I'm going to give it to you. And, and as if God could like, oh, okay, you want me to exchange it? No, but it's the thought. It's the emotion. It's the vulnerability that we feel. I hope you can sense that in this dad's heart as he's coming to Christ. The scripture says that he's an official. He's a leader. He's an individual that has all kinds of power. He has at his disposal as a royal official virtually endless amounts of money, all kinds of servants. And he's come to that place in his life, like a lot of us do, where we have exhausted all of our resources and all we have is, if you will, God. And he comes to Christ, not because he's a follower of Christ, but because he'd probably heard of the miracles that Christ had done, the turning the water into wine. He'd heard about the trip through Samaria. He'd heard about this Jesus, and he probably exhausted virtually every other resource, all of his money. He'd tried various doctors. He virtually had anything to his disposal. And he comes to this place where he just is willing to walk the 18 plus miles to get to Jesus and say, I don't care who you are and I really don't care what you believe. Would you heal my son? Jesus had a question for him. 
It wasn't the same question at all. The father's question is, would you heal my son? Jesus looked at him and said, would you believe in me? And what Jesus teaches us in this very, very short story is that he will never waste one ounce of suffering, one ounce of difficulty, one trial that you face without asking you the question, would you believe in me? In other words, it's not that Jesus doesn't care about the young boy. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about my son who's in the head on. What he cares about more deeply is my faith and yours. And what he's more interested in doing in every situation is to exercise and to grow that spiritual muscle we call faith. Why? Two reasons. Number one is because it pleases God, Hebrews 11, verse 6. And secondly, it blesses us. When we exercise faith, when we grow in our faith, when we move that muscle of faith and expand it, something happens. And Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, there's nothing that's impossible for you. Imagine, just for a moment, a church filled with people who have mustard seed kind of faith. That church is invincible. That church is going to absolutely shatter whatever city they live in. And that's why Christ, when this man comes to him, doesn't really address particularly his question, will you heal my son? And Jesus says, will you believe in me? Because if you do, nothing will be impossible for you. And so Christ wants to move this man from the desperation of his son into the place of strengthened faith. And to do that, as he always does, faith always begins in poverty. It does for every one of us. We don't start our faith on top of our game. Nobody comes to Christ on top of their game. They come in the sense like this dad, desperate. They come yearning for God to work. They come with all of their resources being completely depleted. None of us like to be in that place. We don't. There's not one of us likes to walk into the hospital and see tubes attached to our children and have the doctor say, it's beyond me. No one wants to go there. No one wants to get the phone call from the, from the sheriff's department or from the state police Your son has been in an accident. The automobile is totaled. The front end of the automobile is coming out of the back end of the automobile. No one wants that phone call. And you realize in that moment, you are utterly helpless as a parent. There's really nothing you can do. It's already happened. And whether or not they live is solely the declaration of God's sovereign will. That's the place where God likes to work because that's the place of poverty. Jesus makes this statement. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Another happy. You're in a good place when you're poor in spirit. That's not something you cultivate. It's not something that you can create. It's not something you can move towards. It's only something that you can confess. You can't say, well, God, I'd like to be poor if that's the case. No, no, you can't. It's not that, that's not the way it works. 
You are that. And no matter where you're at in your faith, God will periodically take you to that place like he did the apostle Paul. Paul's long into his faith. He's experienced all kinds of supernatural things. And along comes this thorn, the scripture calls it. And this thorn, this, this illness, this physical ailment, ailment, or it could have been an emotional issue. We don't know. And Paul is praying to God, God, would you take it away? And he prays three times and God says no every time. What does Paul come to the conclusion? In my weakness, I discovered what? Your strength. Like it or not, God is often going to take you and me into that place just like this official where we have nothing but our dependence upon God. And it's there that God says, do you believe in me? Vance Havner often told the story of an elderly lady that had a lot of chronic problems. She had all kinds of problems and her family would come and they were trying to help her and they would finally, one of the grandchildren came to grandma and said, grandma, there's nothing else we can do. You're gonna have to trust God. She looks at him, she said, it's come to that? (laughs) Yes, it is. Sir, your son is ill. And whether or not he lives, it's beyond the doctors. It's beyond all the potions. You have to trust God. And that's where faith begins. But it doesn't stop there. It moves to another level, what I would call the practice of persistent faith. Because God doesn't say, well, I'm going to do it all and you're not going to do anything. Oh, no, no, no. He does. He shows up. He takes the 18-mile journey to Jesus. Could have been upwards maybe of 20 or more. And he comes to Christ and he gets a hearing with Jesus. And he says to Jesus, hey, my son is ill. Sir. Come down before my child dies. Now understand, this guy doesn't have a theology of healing. He doesn't have a theology of anything. All he's heard is that this guy can turn water into wine. He's done the supernatural. And he just thinks maybe just by outside chance, this guy can heal my son. But he has no, he doesn't know if he has to be there. All he knows is he's got a hearing with Jesus. And Jesus pushes back a little bit. Seems kind of rude, but I don't think that it is. I'll explain in a minute. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus turns around and he begins to have this discussion. And he kind of looks at the man, but I think he's actually looking beyond him. And he says, "Uh, you people, you're always asking for miraculous signs and wonders. Jesus told him, I wonder if you'll ever believe Now, and it was he rebuking the guy? I don't think so. I think it's probably, have you ever watched those shows like The Voice or, you know, America's Got Talent? Whenever somebody wins, do you always notice, number one, it's in the Midwest. They're never from L.A. Uh, for good reasons. They're probably not from New York either. They're always from someplace in the Midwest. And they come back and they have this reunion. And it always is at the local, what, high school. And the entire town, there's usually about 6,000 of them, show up. Now, did that person actually, prior to ever getting on America's Got Talent, did did they have 6,000 friends? No, there was only eight people in that town that liked them. 
But when everyone is showing up and the circus is in town and they're going to announce a celebration, everyone wants to be there. It's like we don't want to miss something that is going to be this big. So here, Jesus is coming to town. The rumor is out and this guy goes to Jesus and Jesus understands the nature of people and he kind of says to all of them, oh, you dear friends, you are always up for a circus always wanting the supernatural. I wonder if you'll ever believe in me. Now, if somebody said that to your face, you might say, I'm sorry. I know, I I apologize. I just was hoping somebody could take care of my son. The royal official looks back at Jesus And he said, sir, I don't care about the circus. I don't care about the water into wine. I don't care about what you did in Samaria. What I'll tell you is straight up is I have a son who's gonna die and he means the world to me. Would you leave these individuals and would you come with me? And would you please heal my son? I love this father because he does what any good dad would do. You're not gonna push me back. It's my son. You're not gonna stop on me. You're not gonna pull it. I I understand you don't like the circus. I understand that everyone is here for a miraculous sign. I'm not, I'm here because I love my son. Jesus, when he was teaching in Matthew 7, he makes this statement. He goes, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you're going to find. Knock and it will be opened to you. He is not developing this poetic repetition. He's telling you that when it comes to the issue of God, you're going to have to be persistent. And it's not because God is hard of hearing. It's not because God is indifferent. And it's not because God is busy. It's because God wants to develop your faith. God is interested not just in the healing of your son, not just in the fixing of your finances, not just in the restoration of your marriage. God is interested in that. Those are high on God's value, but he's really interested in what? This muscle we call faith. Why? Because that's what pleases God and that's what blesses you. Because if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, Jesus says, nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing. My dear friends, it should be the greatest pursuit of our heart is to know and to love and to worship our God and to step out in faith, which is spelled R-I-S-K, and to risk not stupidly, but for the glory of Christ, for the honor of his name, and because he's worthy of all of our trust, it should be the pursuit of your heart. I God, want to live by faith. I want to have a greater faith. I want to trust you for more. And to do that, Jesus gives this illustration, not only the teaching in Matthew 7, but also the illustration of the woman in Luke 18 where she's knocking on the door and she won't take no for an answer. And Christ uses that and says, that's what I'd like you to be. I'd like you to be that kind of an individual where you are relentlessly, relentlessly pursuing and asking God. Why? 
Because faith pleases God and it blesses you. And when he has demonstrated and he has seen persistent faith, Christ is gonna take you to the next level. And the next level is committing yourself to a trusting faith. And I would say that a trusting faith is always going to be an obedient faith, it is. Jesus pushes back on the royal official and he says, sir, would you simply come down before my child dies? And then Jesus replies, hey, hey fellow, you can go ahead and go. Your son's going to live. The man took Jesus at his word and left. Now I guarantee you, and I say this not because to dishonor my wife, I say this to honor her. I would not want to have left. You know why? Because I'd have got home and Jesus, my wife would have said, where's Jesus? And I said, well, I, I, I left him back up. You what? You had a conversation with Jesus. You could have touched his hand and you left him? I, I wouldn't have wanted to face my wife. That's why I don't go to the doctor. I send her. Because I, I would come home from the doctor and she'd say, did you ask this? No, I forgot, honey. And what about this? Oh, good night. I can't remember that. How do you remember all this? She remembers all that stuff. I would not have wanted to go back home without Christ. Why? I had him. I was talking with him. I, I touched him. And, and Jesus, come with me. And he leaves him. The one person that he was hoping would heal his son. And he leaves. Why? Because Jesus told him to. And when you pray and you ask God, God, would you? Christ is always gonna come, not with can I heal him, but would you trust me? Will you obey me? Will you do what I ask? Oh, yes, we come, God, would you, would you restore my marriage? It's flat, it's broken. It's, oh yes, I will. But would you learn to forgive? God, would you bring healing to our family? Yes, but would you lay down your pride and humble yourself? See, in every one of these situations where we come to God and say, would you, his question is, will you? Will you have faith in me? Will you trust me? Will you obey me? Will you take that step of obedience? Would you allow me to direct your life? Because that's the issue. The issue is not the illness of my son. The issue is my faith. And that's what God wants to develop. That's what God wants to grow in your life and in my life. Why? Because that's what pleases God and that's what blesses me. Because if I have faith the size of a mustard seed... Nothing. And I don't think Jesus was speaking in hyperbole. Nothing will be impossible for us. But that trusting faith is going to be an obedient faith. It is. It's going to be the man who leaves and says, I took Jesus at his word and I came home. What is Christ asking you to do today? Where is he asking you to take that step of obedience? 
number of years ago, there was a couple that uh, I was working with. They were young in their faith, and financially, they were flipped upside down. They, they didn't have one good thing going on, other than the fact that this guy had a work ethic that just wouldn't quit. But, oh, they were, they were messed up financially. I went to one of our elders, and I asked him, I said, hey, would you take this couple on? He said, sure. And he began to sit down with them, and he said, okay, first thing, if, if you really want to get out of financial trouble, then you've got to learn to give. They looked at him and said, what? We don't have anything to give. We're so financially, yeah, I understand. You got here because you didn't know how to steward God's resources. So what we're going to do is we're going to start off with tithing. Not guarantee if I would have met with that couple, I would not have started there. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying I wouldn't have the guts to do it. Not back then. I would now. <laughs> Why? Because if you want God to do a great work in your life, then you have to be willing to be obedient when Christ asks you to do something. If you want God to come in and swoop in and turn and flip your business, then you have to be willing to say yes to God when he says something. And my dear friend, Daryl, he, he just like looked him square in the eye and said, you know what? If you don't learn to give, you're never going to get yourself out of this thing. If you continue to try and solve this on your own, God will never, you'll never invite the grace and the blessing and the flow of God. This couple took him at his word and they listened. It was within a year and they were completely right side up. Why? Because they understood that trusting is an obedient faith. And when you ask God to come into your life, he's going to ask you, do you trust me? Do you believe me? Will you walk with me? And when we do, that will lead us to a confirmed faith. The man took Jesus at his word, and while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy had been healed. Now I guarantee you, all the way home, this is what he was thinking. I don't know what I'm going to tell my wife when I show up, and she said, where's Jesus? And I said, well, I left him back there in Galilee. And he's making his way home. And so graciously and kindly, he had a bunch of servants with him. He would have never traveled without them. He would probably have been mugged and held hostage somewhere. And then he had his servants come and they come to him and they come up and man, he's walking. And I, I can almost see it. He's walking with his head down and he's thinking, oh God, I'm going to lose the most precious thing in the world. I'm going to lose my son. Why did I leave him there in Galilee? I had him. I was having a conversation with him. And he comes and he sees his servants and at first my conviction is this he thought the servants were coming to tell him don't hurry back your son's died I mean after all why else would they come but these servants they came and notice what it says oh these guys are just the best they come and they said to him the news that your boy was living my son is, the fever is broken. He's up. He's eating chicken noodle soup. It's awesome. When did it happen? When did it happen? Well, I think it was about the seventh hour, that about one o'clock. One o'clock. 
And the guy whips around to his servants and he looks at him and he says, when did Jesus tell me my son was going to live? And they start thinking back and they think, it was at one o'clock. Now, why does Jesus want us to know this? Why does he want us to know that at the very moment he says your son is going to live, that the servants testify to it? Because a confirmed faith is one that moves us from circumstance, from luck, from wow, that's coincidental, to the supernatural. That was the hand of God. When Jesus spoke at one o'clock, my son got healed. When we become aware that God is into the details and he knows exactly what we need and he heals at just the right time, our faith moves from a coincidence to a confirmation. A number of years ago, you've been here, you'll remember this. We, on the second Sunday of every December, we take a Christmas offering. We will this year. We started it to be a blessing to the city. We don't tell the people that we're going to give it to them. We don't ask what they need. We pray about it as a congregation. God, through you, does this amazing blessing. I'll never forget this one time where a group of us went to this one organization in town that was helping adults and children with special needs. We went to them, we had the check written, and we walked in and we asked the question in the office, was there anything that you've been praying for that God would meet a need that you need to buy? And they looked at us and said, oh yeah. They knew exactly what it was. They were praying for a software program. They were resistant to tell me how much it was, I think. I could go back and confirm, probably because they thought, well, it's, it's a lot of money and we don't want to discourage you if we came in and said, well, man, we, you know, we're going to give you 250 bucks. Woohoo! <laughs> we got it out of them and they said, well, it's going to be $4,000. I opened the check and I slid it in front of the director and I said, it seems like God went before us and knows exactly what you need because the check was written for $4,000. Why is that important? Because you need to understand God's into the details. And when you ask God, God, would you fix? Would you heal? Would you lead? God doesn't haphazardly look at you and go, yeah, well, I'll throw you a few bucks. Or I'll make your marriage just a little better. I'll make this just slightly better. No, the confirmed faith is the one that understands at one o'clock God said, I'm going to heal your son. And at one o'clock God healed his son. 
A confirmed faith is when God says, you need $4,000? I'm gonna go find a church that doesn't even know you exist. And I'm gonna put it upon their heart to give you some money. And they're going to supernaturally give $4,000, just the very thing that you need, just so that at the end of the day, you'll understand, I see you and I hear you. And I love to love you specifically. Because God's not about just meeting the check. He's about growing your faith. And it's a confirmed faith that strengthens us. That we become convinced our prayers need to be dead set specific. Not because we're demanding, but because we know God delights in meeting specifically what we ask for. Because a growing faith helps us to please God. And it's a blessing to us. When he came to the Lord, he said, God, would you heal my son? Jesus said, would you believe in me? There's a lot of you right now, you have a request. God is not telling you your request is bad. He's telling you, I want to do more. He's not telling you that your request is selfish. He's saying, I want to do more. I want to do more for you. I want to go beyond. Carrie and I pray probably almost every day for our children like you do as parents. On that day when we finally found out what had happened, that Chad and Kelsey had been hit head on and the front of their Jeep was coming out of the back end of their Jeep. And to realize that when you look at the picture, you think to yourself, there's not one person that lived in that accident. But when it was all said and done, they hopped out of the Jeep, a little stiff, but unscathed. And every time we think back on that day, what comes to our mind is not how well Jeeps are built. It was a soft talk. There's no good reason they're alive. There's no good reason that we have grandchildren with them. Other than you look at that and said, the sovereign purposes of God are being served. And the reason they're alive is not because of our great faith. It's because Jesus says, if you believe in me, I'll show you. If you trust me, I'll reveal my providence. If you trust me, I will help you move mountains. If you trust me, if you believe in me, I will grow this muscle called faith in you and it will please God. And nothing, nothing will be impossible for you. I know we have questions for God. God, would you do this? Yes. God, would you change the vibrancy and the health of downtown? It's one of my prayers. And I can hear the Lord say, will you trust me? God, would you 
enable us to disciple an army of people. Do you believe in me? Because if you trust me, you will please the Father and nothing will be impossible for you. Do you trust him?